Much though there was to admire in my ancestor, the first Baron Munchausen, he had a deplorable propensity for killing any wild creature unfortunate enough to cross his path. He could not meet a boar, wolf, deer, duck, goose or partridge without attempting to slaughter it with his gun, or whatever weapon was to hand. On one occasion he massacred thousands of polar bears, for no better reason than that it made him feel like a second Samson. Whereas my instinct in Australia was to rescue and tend the animals fleeing the all-consuming bushfires, my forebears would have been to pick them off as they broke cover trying to escape. I'd gone north to Queensland for some recreation after my ecological exertions in the Blue Mountains. One day, while kayaking off the Capricorn coast, I spotted a rocky island protruding from the water and decided to explore it. I paddled in close and stepped from my kayak onto a little promontory covered in barnacles. Almost immediately the island began to move beneath me. I realised that I was standing on the nose of an enormous humpback whale. The first baron, I fear, would have rushed ashore in order to commandeer a boat and crew for the purpose of harpooning the magnificent Leviathan. My only desire was not to harm it. My presence, however, must have been an irritation to it, for suddenly its jaws opened and it let out a great sneeze. I was thrown up into the air and on descending went straight down its gullet. I have since read that the esophagus of a humpback whale is no wider than a melon, but this was a truly vast animal and it swallowed me without difficulty, although my ribcage did feel quite constricted as I was ingested. My eyes adjusted to the somewhat murky conditions within. I was in a capacious antechamber, big enough for me to walk about him without banging my head on the ceiling. There was a kind of funnel or drain which must lead to the main stomach. I kept well away from this. My cabin was set about with various items of baleen furniture, including a couch, and was hung with tapestries woven from seaweed and fishnets. These were beautifully decorated with shells and pebbles, as well as bits of blue and orange fishing line, bottle tops and coins of every currency and denomination. I deduced from the furnishings and some carved initials on a piece of protruding bone that I was not its first human occupant. Every so often there came a flushing sound, slightly unnerving until one got used to it, followed by an influx of shrimps, prawns, clams, mussels and other edibles which fell with a small amount of seawater through the esophagus like junk mail through a letterbox. Although I had never eaten raw seafood before, it was so fresh that I did not balk at doing so, and found it delicious. Thus accommodated with both food and a place to rest, I settled down to enjoy the trip, having no notion as to where my cetaceous transport might take me. In the gloom I lost all sense of time. From the fall in temperature of the water which periodically splashed onto the floor with its offering of crustacean and molluscan delicacies, I surmised that we were travelling northward. I was not wrong. After what must have been several weeks 
by the end of which I confess I was dreaming of nothing but bacon sandwiches, the whale rose from the ocean and began repeatedly to pitch itself onto the surface in a most violent manner. I, too, was much thrown about, and had just about resigned myself to being battered to death, when the animal emitted a gigantic belch and fired me through its throat like a cannibal. I flew into the air and saw below me a large coastal town with snow-covered hills behind it. Again, I was convinced that my life would shortly be extinguished, but in fact I landed in a great heap of soft snow and suffered no injuries whatsoever. I brushed myself down and walked into the town. It was very cold, and I had on only a pair of shorts, a thin shirt and sandals. I entered the first building I came to and established that I had made landfall in Magadan, a town on the Sea of Akotsk. The building was an enormous supermarket, claiming to sell anything and everything at the best prices in the entire Far Eastern Federal District of the Russian Federation. I think I mentioned before that I'm an excellent linguist. I had enough Russian and enough Australian dollars to test this claim, and equipped myself with clothes suitable for the bitter climate, a motorized sledge with a large supply of fuel, several sides of cured venison, a dozen jars of caviar, and a case of vodka. I did not linger in Magadan, a town of which its citizens are, I am sure, rightly proud, but which held no charm for me, but pointed the sledge westward and departed, intending that my next stop would be Moscow, more than six thousand miles away. I estimated that this would take between two and three weeks. The sledge had an auto-cruise setting, which for long periods relieved me of the need to stay at the controls, so I wrapped myself up and enjoyed the caviar, venison and vodka. Across the wastes of Siberia I bumped and zoomed, seeing little sign of life. One day, however, the biggest wolf I have ever met appeared alongside me. The first baron was once surprised by a wolf, and in self-defence thrust his fist into its mouth until his arm was in up to the shoulder. The only way he could extricate himself was to seize the wolf's tail with his free hand and turn the poor beast inside out like a glove. My lupine companion was far too large for me to attempt such a feat, nor could my sledge outrun him, for however fast I went he kept loping along beside me, displaying all the while his fiery eyes, sharp teeth and salivating lips. To try to divert him I cut up chunks of venison and threw them over his head, but he leapt and caught every one, swallowing it whole without slackening his pace. This continued for several hours, until I eventually had a brainwave and soaked the last of the venison in vodka. The wolf was a novice when it came to alcohol, and was soon swaying and tottering until eventually he collapsed in a drunken heap, and I left him behind. On arrival in Moscow, I went straight to the Kremlin, as I thought I would seek an audience with the Russian president. I presented my passport to an official and pointed out that it was personally signed by Her Majesty the Queen, but he scoffed in disbelief and refused to admit me. I was extremely angry, and in order to let off steam, went to a nearby gymnasium where I worked out with some weights before challenging any man who dared to take me on in the boxing ring. Six very large and ugly fighters rose to my bait, thinking that I, who was half their size, would be easily defeated but I knocked them out one after another in the first round of each contest. 
a small crowd gathered to watch, and between the fifth and sixth bout I realised that among the onlookers was the President himself, complete with his entourage. As soon as I had laid out the sixth man, I bowed to the President and invited him to take off his shirt and demonstrate his pugilistic skills in the ring with me. I had hoped that he would not be able to resist stripping to the waist, but with a look of disdain he said that while he did not doubt he could beat me, he was already late for an important beating about changing the Constitution. <laughs> I was disappointed, as I did not doubt that I could beat him, but on reflection it probably would have been undiplomatic to have done so. From Moscow, I took the train west and south across Europe, having had quite enough of open-air travel. My financial reserves were in need of replenishment, so I headed to the casinos of the French Riviera. I have in the past won vast sums at both roulette and poker, and have always credited my success to the very simple plan of having no plan at all. My arrival in the area, however, coincided with that of the most ferocious storm, which caused flash floods damage to property and even loss of life. I was leaning on a gate beside the river Var, just north of Cannes, preparing for my first night on the gambling tables by emptying my mind of anything resembling a strategy, when the flood water poured downstream, and the gate, with me attached to it, was swept away. The violent current carried us through the city and out into the Mediterranean, and was so fierce that without any assistance from me, the gate floated across the Golf du Lyon to Barcelona, a distance of 277 nautical miles. I believe this is a world record for any journey by gate on water. It was some years since I had last visited Barcelona, and I enjoyed wandering along Las Ramblas and dropping into one or two carver bars near the old port. There were huge cruise ships docked at the quayside, and I fell into conversation with a woman who was about to embark on one of them. It transpired that she was a well-known novelist, although I had never heard of her, who was about to travel to the Caribbean and Florida, giving en route a series of lectures on the art of fiction. In return for this none-too-arduous task, she would not only have all her accommodation and meals paid for, but would also receive a substantial fee. She was rather ashamed by these arrangements, which she considered artistically repugnant, yet financially irresistible. Having no such scruples, I inquired if she thought the ship might have any lecturing vacancies. I said that I could lecture on almost any subject she cared to mention, but that my specialities were travel, philosophy, adventure, history, flora and fauna, and international relations. Ms. X, whose name it would be dishonourable of me to disclose, took me aboard to meet the Culture and Leisure Programme Coordinator. And to cut a long story short, this personage, while not as impressed as she should have been by my erudition and rhetorical powers, was completely bowled over when she saw the signature of Her Majesty in my passport, and begged rather than invited me to join the voyage. It was thus that I found myself crossing the Atlantic Ocean in very comfortable circumstances. I gave three series of lectures, 
which required absolutely no preparation and were rapturously received by the hundreds who attended them. My subjects were presidents, prime ministers, monarchs and oligarchs who have known me, travels in seven continents and outer space, and whither mankind. In this last series, I discussed how much longer the human species was likely to survive, and this prompted animated debate among my listeners, many of whom were advanced in years. Some worried that I was questioning whether they personally would make it to Bermuda, let alone Miami, while others gleefully declared that they did not care a fig about the species so long as the market did not crash before they died. I will save for another instalment what happened when we reached the other side of the Atlantic. <laughs>